animal rights. I mean, so usually animal rights people are also environmentalists, but not vice versa. And there's always been a, uh, I guess, a resistance, sometimes even hostility, even today, among environmentalists towards animal rights. Really? Well, because of the point, from the environmental point of view, there's nothing wrong per se with killing animals, just kill the right number of them. So they. Oh, can you, will, will it record as well there? Do I have yeah, to? Yeah, put this. Yeah, I guess. Live. Westwood, California. Please <laughs> oh. carry on. Is it better if I click it? Maybe, but I don't. I could just click it here also. But like that. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting because environmentalists often are, not always of course, but often are sort of unabashed humanists. They really don't respect, they, they don't even get into the issue of rights and anything like that, anything philosophical. It's just that we need to keep a balance on earth so you can kill animals, don't kill too many. Yeah, we're, um, one of our big uh, professors just recently, he passed away, but he sort of like spearheaded it when it started in 1970 with like the oil spill and stuff. But for the most part, I really like not, Chandra kind of knows this, I'm not much of a, a student. I'm just kind of, uh, you know, whatever, Whatever my grades are, you know, if I can just get my degree and, and, and go. What do you want to do? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, that leaves all your options open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you? I'm working. What do you do? I am in, for lack of a better term, luxury construction. Luxury construction? Yeah, I work for a French. Commercial company. or residential? Well, primarily residential, but now we're going into commercial. Better commercial. So it's a French company, and they own quarries and all that. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, I so use, like fine building materials? And uh, antique French oak, antique limestone. They also own quarries in France where they age limestone. So any house that's, I hate to say, like 10 million and above, we, and I'm in charge of finding the clients. So really? Really. How do you find the clients? I travel all over. Um, we have five offices in the States, and so I set up meetings with um, the architects, the designers. So we go to air, you know, high net worth, high income areas. So I'm in Aspen, I'm in, in, <laughs> that sort of stuff. That's why I like going to I like, I, I try to uh, balance my life, <laughs> and I'm happy with Michigan, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's very interesting. 10 million and above. Well, the next time I build a house like that, I'm definitely going to call you. <laughs> but that may not be soon. It's interesting. That market has fallen off a bit, or at least it had. I don't know whether it's it, come it, back now. It, it has come back with a vengeance. Yeah, because rich people basically... It's like that great line from Pride and Prejudice where uh, someone, I think Lizzie, is sort of falsely accusing Mr. Darcy of having been unkind or 
son to Wickham, and, she, and then her father says, "Well, he may turn out to be no worse than your average rich man that doesn't care about anyone else." I mean, it's just interesting that it, that in, in an age when there's so many social problems, that they are still indulging themselves. Yes. Yeah, they're not very bright. My experience, frankly, is that there's there's a tendency to to equate money with intelligence, but it's often bad algebra. In that, um, obviously, let's say someone who earned their money and didn't just inherit it often will have be intelligent at something, mm-hmm. or very lucky, but but often they're intelligent. But but but. It's a very limited, narrow intelligence. Like maybe they know how to buy and sell a certain thing or, or this or that, but in terms of philosophy, in terms of anything. There's no soul. What? There's no soul to what they're doing. Some of them do. Well, yeah, some of them, some of them yeah. are very bright. Some of them actually have a conscience. There's a lot of very rich, very stupid people in the world. And um, in a sense, that's why the world's in the state it's in. So. Um, yeah, it just seems like the way the world is now that rather than displaying wealth and building extravagant places they don't really need. They want to stay in for one week of the year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are people like even Gates, Bill Gates, he is now spending a lot of time with his charity. So there is... The Giving Foundation yeah, there is a uh, there is a group of very rich people that are trying to do charitable work. I mean, there is a group like that. But uh, I certainly couldn't say they're the majority. And also, they tend to be nurses instead of doctors. In the sense that, I mean, this is sort of a crude distinction, but let's say you go to a hospital and you're injured, and the nurse has to immediately check life-threatening symptoms and Make sure you're comfortable, not in great pain, and, and eventually a doctor has to come and really figure out what's wrong. And 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 so it's like, for example, doing charity in, among poor communities, providing them certain essential services or products like healthcare or clean drinking water, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's all. That's all important. I mean, it has to be done. It's. It, you could say it's essential. All that has to be done. But those are, in a sense, as those are symptoms. There's something basically wrong, and those are symptoms. So, what is basically wrong? What is producing all these uh, symptoms of social dysfunction? So, um, ultimately, there are people that have power, there are people that have money, and nowadays you could, you could questionably say people have power because of democracy, but they knew what they were doing. But, um, but the state of consciousness was a problem in the state of consciousness. I saw a bumper sticker that said... Um, Invest in America by a congressman, and it really is like that. They're, 
not everyone, you can't say everyone, but there's a lot of people in the Congress, Senate, and House who really seem like very sleazy characters who they are. I mean, it's almost like you call them prostitutes. You're almost offending prostitutes by calling them that. You say an ordinary prostitute is sort of making a buck, whereas they're destroying the world. So, yeah, so the problem is consciousness, and, you know, it's like you rang, that's what we do, that's our product, higher consciousness. But even these very rich people, they, it's not, it's not, it's certainly you can't criticize them for doing this, say, conventional charity, it's, comparatively speaking, it's quite noble of them. And it, it is work that must be done. You know, people must be taken care of. However, uh, they don't really... Yeah, usually they don't really have a concept of what's really wrong. It's almost... It, it's, it's like someone smokes and then they have lung problems, so you keep treating their lungs and never change their lifestyle. A person continues to smoke then you keep treating their lungs. And so that's, it's something like that. There's a, uh, there's a deep consciousness problem. And that's what we're trying to address at the root, going to the root of the problem. In the meantime, of course, like you go into the hospital and you're in pain, they take care of that. That may not be addressing the ultimate issue which may be some serious injury or disease, but still, they do try to make you comfortable while you're getting your diagnosis and hopefully your basic treatment. So they, but, but you, I mean, it is sort of a more, it is not sort of, it's a moral obligation that even as you're preparing to or engage in the process of treating the basic disease, you still have to make the patient comfortable and do everything possible to relieve their pain and their discomfort and so on and so forth. But it's hard to get funding nowadays for the basic medical work. I mean, to use this analogy in the sense of trying to really address consciousness. <laughs> Luxury construction. <laughs> Do you, ever, do you ever meet the rich people themselves? To Yeah, because they eventually become our clients. Oh, so then you have to talk to them about options. Right. I mean, most of the time I meet them once or twice. With the owners of the company, we have, you know, we have dinner with them and all that. But, most of the, but on a day-to-day basis, I deal with their um, owner's rep, business manager, you know, because you have to deal with the money and payments and all that stuff. But, you know... Usually I have three or four instances of FaceTime with them over a period of the project. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the most interesting client I met is the one we're doing by the What? Hold that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yes? I said, stand up to meet and greet. 
So the last client was what? Oh, he's still he's we're still working on his house. He's um, where is that? Where is that? In Vancouver, in Point Grey. Hi. Hello, how are you? Hi, nice to meet you. I'm nice to meet you. Malia. Malia? Yes. Come on in. Hey there, Ed. Ed. Yeah. So, oh, you can put it right here. Let's see, yeah. maybe out of the way here. Have a seat. Hi, Peter. Hi, nice. Hello. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Everyone. Yeah, you can sit on, I can We sit can bring some floor. chairs over. It's not a real big place, as you can see. No, that's fine. Is it noisy? We can close the windows. It's, there's not fresh air by now. Feels good. What is that? Feels good. Yes, it's the noise, feel good trade off. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe we'll compromise. Maybe we'll leave that one open and then get some air. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Except sometimes that little thing hanging down will rattle my ship a little bit. So, Malia, where are you from? I'm from Philadelphia area. Oh. Um, I live in Philadelphia, but I grew up about a half an hour outside of the city, so. Found the studio about five years ago, so now that's what led me here. And I see did my roommate from Rio Good Dreaming. <laughs> How about you? Where are you from around here? Yeah, Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles. Awesome. I so. were just admiring the city. It's so pretty, and there's so much greenery compared to Philadelphia. You know? Oh, so yeah, Philly. Alive. Do you want to see it there? Can I use the bathroom, please? Actually, it's not working so well. Right down in the uh, lobby, there's a bathroom. Uh, you know what? I'm not. I'm lost. I'll, I'll sit for a little. Okay. Um, yeah, of course, there are nice areas in Philadelphia, like uh, up there. And what do you call it? Um, the Templars? Chestnut Hill and mm-hmm. Mount Area. Yeah, definitely outside of the city, there's some nice Like, I grew up in Malvern, and there was the, like, oh, George. the hiking area and stuff. What did you say? George. George? Washington. Washington. Oh, oh, no, no, that's a diff- of course, that's a different mountain version. Of course, you're Pennsylvania. Yeah. Where, where I was like, Washington? how'd you know my dad's name? What's that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Her father's name is George. My dad's name is George. I was like, what? <laughs> We're talking about uh, Peter, Pedro. He does luxury construction. He works for a French company that builds houses, but only if they cost $10 million and up. Oh, wow. We ordered five, just for us. But, <laughs> so <a> crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's why it's, you know, you need to super balance, because from nine to five, <laughs> the things yeah. I hear and I have to deal with, it's unreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My fiance is in construction. Twenty million and up. Yeah. No, he doesn't do that. He does decks and you know basement renovations and stuff like that. But his father actually does like custom home building right. out um, in like central Pennsylvania, and they're a lot of like multi million dollar houses, but not that scale, you know. But are you guys all from, from
I, I'm from Southern California. Southern California? Yeah, we're from um, San Diego. Yeah. Well, I live in Santa Monica. <laughs> I'm born in Santa Monica. Well, we have two teams here. It's <laughs> a <laughs> World Series. None of what we're talking about is because Paul, right? Yeah. Studies uh, environmentalism at Santa Barbara, UCSB. I was making the point that um, if you study the history of the environmental movement and animal rights movement, there always was a tension and at times a conflict between environmentalists and animal rights people. I mean, generally, animal rights people tend to also be environmentalists. Mm -hmm. But um, from the point of view of an environmentalist, or at least many of them, I almost tend to say most of them, uh, it's all right to kill animals, just don't kill too many. So they're not really, it's, it's not an ethical issue, it's just, or the only, the only real ethical concern is the well-being of humans. It's better for human beings if we have a full variety of species and we don't ruin the weather and stuff like that. So therefore, for our sake as human beings, uh, we should kill animals rationally, right numbers, right kinds. And in fact, there's even there's a there's a new TV show on. I don't watch. I don't have a TV. That's just for DVDs. But. Um, which is a spoof on the culture of the North Pacific Northwest. Something about Portland, Portlandia. I just saw an article about it. And so in the pilot, they were spoofing. It was like a spoof on these people who go to a restaurant. They order some kind of... I can't remember if it's fish or this or that. But they're concerned to know whether the, f the creatures that were killed for their dinner were ethically treated. And that's like a joke. That's like shows how silly... Anyway, that was that was like a joke. Yeah. To to care about the ethical treatment of other creatures. So, um, so to tie these two things together, luxury construction and the animal rights movement, we were saying that uh, no, not luxury construction. What were we talking about? Oh, oh, anyway, we went over so many topics, but. Um, Yeah, as far, as far as the way the world is, oh, we were talking about rich people. That's how we got it. We were talking about rich people. And I was making the point that there is a, maybe it's a growing community of very rich people, like Bill Gates and so on, who um, are really f doing a lot for charity. And so there are, I mean, most rich people, of course, are not extremely concerned with those things. And... Um, but still, there are some people who are, but even the charity they tend to do is, I guess, tends to be what I would call conventional charity. Like, poor people, like, give them what they need, drinking water, or medical services, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, I was making the point that um, that type of conventional charity is necessary, it's certainly necessary. But it doesn't really address the root cause of the problem. So I gave the example. Boy, I mean, this, this is like a rerun. I'm just going to all the same points again. At least it shows I still have a memory. They're invested, they're invested in the status quo. Some, yeah. Bill Gates needs to keep selling computers. 
<laughs> true. That's true. Or maybe he doesn't need to. He's, he's still a shareholder and selling computers. It's, it's like if someone smokes and has lung problems and they, they continue smoking and you keep treating their lungs. So you never really address the issue like maybe you shouldn't smoke. You just keep treating their lungs. And so the basic problem is consciousness. There's a consciousness issue, of course. And um, so that's what we're addressing. I got a briefcase, show you our product. It's, um, it's interesting because when I, when I was at, you remember the University of Florida, you were there. I was teaching the whole history of Indian religion. You know, the whole thing, yoga, and just Vedic, just the whole history of Indian religion. And um, I was making the point that there, there are two, I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a fair philosophical point, there are two, you could say, philosophical or theological extremes which have not been good necessarily for the environment. And one is, well, monism and dualism. Monism is saying like everything is one. You've heard that, you know, everything is one. Which is, uh, I think, a little more than a little silly because if you look everywhere, you see nothing but variety of colors and sounds and people. And and so, let's say, accepting there is a, a oneness of everything, but still, there's variety. But, there, but there's a radical, from India, like Shankara. Shankara I mean, there's people that held that kind of view in the West also the history of Western philosophy and theology, but Shankara is the most famous proponent of that, that, that we are all one, that our individuality is an illusion, that when we become enlightened, which is, there's something very silly about that philosophy, which which has never been successfully addressed because it's, it's sort of like an incorrigible silliness. And that is, if we're all just one, if we are all absolutely one, then how did we get into the situation we're in now? Because if everything is one, there obviously has to be a second thing, which is illusion. Or whatever it is that caused us to go bonkers and to think, and like, why are we in material bodies? And Because if everyone is really God, but just forgot it, then you could just say, okay, now I remember, and then you'd have all the powers of God. It's like, let's say you have amnesia, uh, because you suffered extreme emotional distress listening to, say, a public radio fundraising drive. <laughs> and so you... So let's say if you have amnesia and you forget who you are, then the second you remember, it's you again. You have all the same rights, the privileges. It's, that's, really, that's your credit card and that's your checkbook and that's your car and that's your house. So as soon as you remember who you are, you're back in action. But if you think that, well, we're all God, but we've forgotten, then as soon as you say, okay, I am God, you're not back in action. For example, you can't jump out the window there and fly, you can't create a universe, you can't do anything. It's, it's, it's still just poor old you, you know, just one more human being just flopping around on the earth. And so... You can say that, okay, I'm God, or we're all one, or we're all God, but nothing happens. Maybe in, in meditative states, you know, you like um, think that something's happening, but outside of your 
extremely subjective meditative states. Uh, when you actually come out into the objective world where it's not just what you think, you know, where there's actually other people you have to deal with, uh, you're not God. And neither is anybody else. Everybody's just an ordinary human being. Subject to all the laws of nature as opposed to being above them. So, another problem with that philosophy is that um, if we are all really one, then that means that personal individuality is not real. And it also means the material world is not real. And so if the material world is not real, like why is it so important what you do to it? Or don't do it? And this, this problem actually came up in the early history of Buddhism. It's a very common phenomenon in the history of religions that the first few generations after a great founder get more extreme than their teacher was. Like, if you look at the early Buddhist community, they definitely went far beyond what Buddha taught. And you see the same thing with Shankara and, and many other. It's, it's, a, it's a very common thing. So they began to teach that there's no soul, there's no individual soul. And then some of the Buddhists said, well, wait a second. If there's no individual soul, then why is it right or wrong to do anything? Because you just say, go and, and, and kill some innocent person, but that's not a person. And I'm not a person, so I'm not guilty, and that person's not innocent, because none of us really exist. And yet we still believe in the laws of karma. We still believe that actions are punished and rewarded according to their moral goodness or badness and so and who gets the karma if there's no individual soul then, then who gets the karma and what about all the stories about Buddha about his many different lives where he kept getting more and more pious till finally he won you know the, the grand prize and became the Buddha so so if you say everything's won and it doesn't look like it won it really looks like like this is a building that's a tree and that's a girl, and that's a boy. It really looks that way. So if you say that everything is just one, it means you're radically rejecting everything that appears to us to be real. You're saying none of this actually exists the way we, 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 we see it. So everything is really just an illusion. So if everything's just an illusion, then who cares about the environment? It's just an illusion. So that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is extreme dualism, which you get, like let's say, like a typical biblical religion in the sense that there's a gulf of separation between ourselves and God. And even if you consider one of the hallmarks of the uh, biblical religions, actually they call technical term, they call it as Abrahamic religions because Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam all accept the Old Testament. So everyone added something like the Christians accepted the Old Testament but added the New Testament and the Muslims accepted both those and added the Quran. And so if you look at those three religions, um, the hallmark of those religions coming out of the Middle East is uh, sort of iconoclasm. The idea, you know, no graven images, you can't, no idol worship. Idols are good if it's on, if it's on a music competition, but not if it's in a, like a church or a temple. And so... If you think of, and so why was it considered to be like in Islam, especially certain sort of uh, 
little uh, I don't know, fanatical branches of it. Like the worst thing you can do is to have, say, an idol or an image, and you know, and, and in general, people in Judeo-Christian Islamic culture get completely—they go crazy if they see like an idol. You're worshiping an idol, and so the philosophy behind this, and of course, Hinduism is very different, but the philosophy behind behind this anti-idol thing is that matter physical universe is so bad it's so nasty and evil and so God is the purest God is the holiest and so to juxtapose to bring together the holiest and the raunchiest you know matter is the greatest offense and so there's actually a, a direct connection between the hostility towards images and temples and the destruction of the earth. Those two things are actually coming from the same philosophy because you see physical nature as bad or, you know, it's nothing. So, so in the middle, the middle position, which was the Vaishnava position, is that um, we're all one and yet we're individual. It's like in a family. I mean, let's say in a good, functional, loving family, which is sort of a very quaint notion in modern America, but <laughs> ancient history, right? So in a very... Um, I mean, there still are good families, obviously, but, but, in, but in a very sort of together, loving family, there, there's, a, there's a oneness, and yet there's individuals. You know, mom, dad, the kids, or whatever. There's, it's one, but it's different. It's a family, and yet there's individuals. Or like, let's say, in a very um, successful couple. It is a couple, but they're two individuals. In fact, psychology will tell you that if you lose your individuality and become codependent, that's not good. On the other hand, if you're just two individuals and you're not really a couple, that doesn't work either. So, so if you think about it, even in a good human relationship, there has to be oneness and difference. And same thing in our relationship with God. So, so seeing the world as sacred, seeing the world as, as people used to do, even in, um, I guess, what are you allowed to call them? Anthropology, simple societies. I mean, the idea that, um, that the whole world's enchanted that that in a forest, in a river, a sky, a sun and the moon, there's actually a divine presence. It's interesting how, without going to the whole history, if you look at, say, Paul Tarsus, as in St. Paul, as in Minnesota, that, um, I mean, there's an example of someone going beyond the authority he claims to be representing, because... The Bible. Could you open those windows a little more? That it won't rattle. There you go. <laughs> oh, that one you got to push on this side. Uh, what do you have on your door? Do you yeah, yeah. It's it's for my family. I put it there. A little more, yeah. A little more so it doesn't rattle. That's good. Judaism, it's interesting. If you study all these religions, Judaism, Christianity, and all of them, 
at the at the mystic level they tend to be very similar and then at the sort of fanatical ethnic level they're very different like if you look at Jewish mysticism people that really took spirituality seriously and were really trying to get into states of higher consciousness it's very similar to what's done say in yoga I mean it's really the same thing you know some little details are different but it's basically it's 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 like a pyramid. As you get to the as you get higher, it it gets more the same. You know, you get closer together. Second pyramid analogy I heard today. Oh really? Yeah, I I had to do makeup class for yoga, and he was saying that just laying the foundation and then you know he, you know puts the point on the top and that's like it's funny. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> you were speaking about Paul. I've got to get some new material. I, once he's in the pyramid analogy. Yes? You were speaking about Paul. Oh, yeah. So Paul says in one of the letters he wrote that um, there's a controversy over whether or not some of the early members of the of his communities, which wasn't Christianity then. I mean, that was, it wasn't a different religion then. It was just a branch of Judaism at first for at least 100 years or more. But there was, there was a controversy over whether... Um, people in the community could eat meat. Unfortunately, the controversy was had nothing to do with ethics. It wasn't like, is it okay to kill animals? That, that's not what it was about. It was because these communities which were around the Roman Empire, uh, the meat market, in the meat market, all the meat that was available back then uh, was offered had been offered in sacrifice to different pagan gods. Because if you study pagan religion, which is really like Mediterranean Hinduism, but if you, if you, if you study pagan religion, you don't eat or drink anything unless you offer it to some divine power. And uh, so all the meat that was available had been offered to pagan gods. So in these early Christian communities, they were fighting, they are always fighting, you know, half of Paul's letters about trying to get them not to fight with each other. But so one group said that um, we shouldn't eat this meat because it's been offered to false gods. Open a little more. And then another group said, "Well, these gods don't exist, so you know, doesn't matter. We can eat it." And so uh, Paul wrote back in his great wisdom. Paul wrote back and said that it's true that you can eat the meat because the gods don't actually exist. There are no other gods. However, in order to keep peace in the community, maybe don't eat the meat. I mean, Paul's an omnivore. He had no problem eating anything. But what's interesting is, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches that there are other gods. They're just not the highest. For example, the first commandments. The first commandment of the ten says, you shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't say no other gods exist. It just says you have to get them in the right order. And there are Old Testament scholars know that there are statements in the Old Testament that say that um, that there are, you know, there's this God and this one and the other one, but your God is Yahweh. Your God, so therefore you have to worship your God. Because, so you shall have no other gods before me. But then you get this stripped-down universe. I mean, the, the Paul actually... If you study the early Christian community, they were constantly 
doing what is called proof texting. Proof texting means that you you try to prove the truth of what you're saying by referring back to an earlier text. So if you look at the New Testament, they're constantly claiming that whatever Jesus did or said was prophesied or predicted in the Old Testament. Like Jesus did something. And he did that because it was said in Isaiah or it was said here or there. So the Old Testament has, you know, probably hundreds of these things where they're referring back to the Old Testament to validate Jesus, to, to prove that Jesus is really the guy. And so Paul, who maybe, it just changes the whole Old Testament theology. And then what happened is that sort of came down in Judeo-Christianity, so you get this really stripped-down universe where the universe is basically just this big void. It's, there's just nothing there. It's like the earth with a few humans and, and you know a few humans who get it, who have the right religion. And besides that, it's just this big empty universe. And nature is just kind of completely stripped down. There's no... There are no gods or goddesses. The whole thing just becomes... Uh, what's interesting is if you look at the Old Testament, it's clear that there were constantly... The Jewish people in ancient Israel were constantly uh, getting into these New Age things because they were, they, they were constantly uh, worship, I don't know if the word worship is really the right word but honoring these nature gods and goddesses in fact if you, if you look at the history in the Old Testament from the time that Solomon built the temple the first temple in Jerusalem it's the time it was destroyed and the Jews were taken to uh, Babylon um, for most of the time that first temple existed they were sort of doing Hinduism in it. I mean, in the sense of they had different nature gods and goddesses. Solomon, Solomon himself, who had a uh, he had a few wives. He had a shiksa wife. You know that term. He had a wife who wasn't Jewish. <laughs> he had a wife. <laughs> he had a he had a pagan wife. What's the term? Shiksa. It's anyway. So so on the temple grounds. Of the you know the Temple Mount, the first great temple in Jerusalem built by Solomon, he had built for his wife a little shrine where she could worship her gods. I mean, Solomon did that. So, and again, for if you just read the Old Testament, for most of the time the temple existed, it was. I don't want to say polytheistic. Because, for example, Hinduism ultimately, or Vedic, the older, you know, Hinduism is kind of a modern term, but that, that culture, it, it is monotheistic. The Bhagavad Gita is, is very powerfully monotheistic. But it acknowledges that there's one supreme God, but that supreme God has many, there are many good souls that help God. Just like you may serve God here on earth, so there are souls who are a little more little higher up in the uh, corporate ladder, so to speak, and they're serving God at higher levels, at cosmic levels. And you also can honor them. It's like, for example, let's say a cop pulls you over. You don't say, I only stop for the mayor. I don't stop for... <laughs> I mean, the point is, you know, lower officials may represent higher officials. And so... It's interesting because what, what's come down to us now is this 
Anyway, it's a very special version of biblical religion, which doesn't necessarily reflect, and often in many cases doesn't at all reflect what came before it. So, Krishna consciousness is trying to get back to that original Dharma, original. Um, so it's monotheistic, and yet there's recognition the universe is uh, there's a lot of diversity in the universe there's a lot going on kind of like that bar scene in Star Wars you know this all those weird creatures and everything (laughs) (laughs) taking a religion and the environment class right now oh really Mm -hmm. oh wait is anybody want any water do you? Anyone? I could, yeah, we, we're, I got really dehydrated. Why don't you, here, I'll show you that we have some cups, yes. and then we can pour. I have some red juice. Oh, really? Why don't you, why don't you get that? Oh, really? Why don't you, why don't you get that? Yeah, get, get out of your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> dissertation could be done on linking Vaishnavism with the environmental issue. Oh, it's unlimited. Because it's, it's philosophy of nature. What is nature? There's certain technical details, obviously, like the environment. There's a certain balance which you can you can study nature and say that when nature is in balance, this is kind of how it works. That's but um, yeah, how should we? What is nature, and how should we treat it? What about other creatures? How should we treat other creatures? It seems like America kind of has a schizophrenic. legal attitude in the sense that if an animal makes a cute urban pet it has many many legal rights but animals that don't make cute urban pets have no rights even if those other animals have just as much consciousness so as I always say it's it's, it's the worst kind of government where 
you have no rights personally. Everything depends on the whim of the master, the tyrant. I'm sorry. I couldn't find the bathroom. Oh, you have to go downstairs? Oh, do I, oh okay. Oh, yeah, just take the over. It's, um, can you just go straight out? Just keep going that way. Just take the over to the first one. I don't know here. And then just ask them to ask them. Would you like juice? Oh, maybe I will. I don't have to drive, so I guess I can see. Oh, Shivananda Ashram in the, um, in the Bahamas? What? I'll record it. <laughs> and so I've, I've gone there a couple of years. I do these, like, a week of lectures at their international yoga thing they do there. I said, they want me to go back, but um, you were there. Yeah. Why not? It, it is tiring. It's just tiring. But Why would they want to talk, uh, to talk about it? Well, I thought maybe I'd give a little course in Bhagavad Gita, but... Yeah, they're waiting for an answer. I mean, I keep. I keep. When would it be? Yeah. I mean, people could die. I mean, I, I'm not saying that he can't cure certain things. I'm not. I'm not rejecting it. I think that it probably can do some good. I'm just saying, though, that um, it seems to me it's kind of like it's based on this assumption that if you do all the right things, you won't get any diseases. I think you can minimize disease, you can reduce disease, but I think disease is also a natural part of the world. It would be nice, though, like you were saying about um, we're all one or we're, there's yeah. separation for pre-industrial organic earth and post-industrial maybe like some kind of nice blend would be better you know if we could take it, if we could respect the organic environment more but then utilize technology more responsibly or yeah you know even like I don't know an example would be the use of bamboo in construction or something you know? yeah We're sure still using the natural resource but definitely and that, I think that's where it's going to because I don't think people are just going to just totally give up all technology that doesn't doesn't seem like that's ever going to happen. I'm kind of happy with some of it. <laughs> of course, if you have to live in a city like like there's a yeah there's a, there's a Whole Foods just down the street here, so yeah, you can get like yeah. So, but I agree. I don't think you can take out all of it. But if everyone. If people would could live much more appropriate lives, if there wasn't so much greed and vanity, and then we wouldn't need to consume so much. And there are certain things that it's funny because you know Al Gore made a movie called Inconvenient Truth. What's interesting, there are some truths that were too inconvenient for Al, like like the UN. Everyone knows these things. The UN published a report showing that. 
the cattle industry produces more greenhouse gases than all motorized vehicles on Earth. But that was too inconvenient. Why well, he didn't he didn't put that in the movie? I haven't watched that movie. No, no, he doesn't. He practically doesn't deal with animal rights. Again, that's that's an example. I, I, in fact, someone told me he has a cattle ranch or did or something. So, so like someone drives a Prius and then and then eats beef. It's they don't get it because you're you're doing much more harm by your eating than 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 any good you're doing by driving your little Prius. That's, I feel like you'd not eat it and, and drive the Prius. Exactly. Prius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be best. It's, I, was, I was lecturing at the University of Florida. Uh, not my class. It's going to be another lecture, a general lecture. And It's funny. I was taking a walk on the campus and, and, and they had this uh, special recycling trash barrel. And then just next to that, there was a campus cafe where they were selling all this meat. So I was making the point, you're doing a thousand times more harm here than, than any good you're doing here. Obviously, you should do both, as you say. But um, the, the, that, that is the 800-pound gorilla in the room for environmentalists, the fact that perhaps the single biggest problem they don't talk about. The single, probably the single biggest problem for the environment and it's an enormous hydrology problem the fact that it wastes unimaginable quantities of water water that we don't have yeah we learned that in one of our environmental classes the amount of water used just to grow the wheat that we give with the cows that we eat for every burger it was like something crazy like 880 gallons of water yeah, and, and to produce that same protein through plant food, you know, takes it. So, and they often don't talk, I, eventually they'll have to talk about it, like they say, necessity is the mother of invention, is an old saying, but eventually they'll have to talk about it, but they try not to talk about it. They try not to talk about it. A lot of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Well, I was talking to one sort of, you know, environmentalist guy, liberal guy in Ashland, Oregon. And this was a few years ago before Obama was elected. And he said, well, I think that's an individual choice like eating. I, th I, th I thought, this is amazing. That's exactly what W, you know, George Bush was saying about where we had these, like, crazy policies where... Uh, Factories, industry doesn't have to lower their emissions. They should just do it, you know, voluntarily if the spirit moves them. If they feel like doing it, and it's like, what? Like you have this big industry, and there are no standards for emissions. You just, if you feel like it, then you can do it. But that's what this guy on the liberal side was saying about eating. And the funny thing is, the meat eating probably causes more problem than the factories. Is meat eating in and of itself more destructive than all of industry? Well, the UN published a report, I remember a few years ago, saying that the cattle industry produced more greenhouse gases than all the motorized vehicles on Earth. My brother told me. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge problem which the environmentalists 
hardly ever talk about. What? They hardly address it. No. Yeah. Why is that? A lot of. I mean, I'm. There's a magazine in Philly called Grid Magazine. It's supposed to be an environmentalist magazine. What's it called? It's called Grid Magazine. Uh huh. Something to do with off the grid, or it's not really, but it's it's a cool magazine. Um, and I think that there's a division in that magazine between. There's plenty of environmentalists and non-mediators, and there's plenty of environmentalists and mediators, and there's a division. They both have different. Yeah, so if, if an environmentalist... Could you have me a cup? If an environmentalist is a meat-eater, then why... I don't understand, I don't see what moral right that person has to tell other people, like, change your life. Like, you should... You shouldn't drive... Don't drive this car, drive that car, or don't drive a car, take the train, or... How can you tell other people what to do if you are egregiously abusing the environment and for the worst possible reason. So you can justify this brutal, brutal exploitation of another feeling creature. Let's get on my soapbox. Be on Sunday morning television. <laughs> Preaching. <laughs> I like this. But are they some, I don't know. I think I got, like, Jaisi just, and Joel, this guy in Philly, got me into the Sarge movement. And I think the reason, the only, the reason Phil Sal, actually I read a couple of problems about, I don't know if I pronounce his name. That's right. Got his books, and I thought, wow, this makes a lot of sense, you know. Talks a lot about Judeo Christianity, and like in the kosher meat is the. Rabbi is going to kill him. Not really like, wow, like, how can you be led by somebody who's. But I'm sure, like, you know, Christianity is around the world. There's a lot of problems in Judea. I mean, I see in my family's culture, there's like a lot of problems with, with uh, well, in the synagogue that I grew up going Yeah. To. Well, again, the, the, those were more serious spiritually. In any religion, including Hinduism, there's not that many people who are really spiritually serious. But it's... Yeah, they do have all these things at the higher levels. Almost still honorable, Gito? Okay. We're going to play a little music for you. Yeah. We do duets. I'll warn you about myself. She's the musician. <laughs> and I sort of fake it. <laughs> My friend from France. Vaikunta Priya. Maybe uh, introduce all of our contestants here. No, no, go ahead. Wherever, wherever you like. This is more comfortable now. Please. If you don't mind, I'm sitting on your bed. Où vous voulez? Oui, bien sûr. What's your name? Jessica. Jessica. 
And what's your name again? I'm Paul. Paul. Ed. Ed. Malia. Malia. Beautiful name. Thank you. Did you bring one of those people? No, I just brought Paul. Uh-huh. Well, I've seen you before. Your face is very familiar to me. Malia. I believe it was Chandra. What is that from? Oh, it's wise. Oh, really? What does it mean? It means calm seas. Means what? Calm seas. Oh, calm seas. Because it kind of sounds like that Indo-European root that means like honey and sweetness. Like mellifluous. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, Hawaiian. Hawaiian. Can right? I can I see your birth certificate? Oh. <laughs> 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 You've been following the news too much, Mom. <laughs> well, I was born in in Colorado. Actually, I was born in Denver, but. Um, she says. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just no, kidding. I know. Um, so, yeah, but um, but I spell it differently than they do in Hawaii. How do you spell it? M-A-L-E-A. M-A-L-E-A. Oh. In, in Hawaii, it's a lot like M-A-L-I-A-E. Right, right. Or I-A. That's nice. Beautiful name. Thank you. Are you ready? Please do? Yeah. We're going to do a little duet for you. Oh, wonderful. Jai is a wonderful, wonderful musician. But I will try not to spoil what she's doing. And you can play piano? Yeah, yeah, keyboard and cello. But she's the musician. We, I've seen her a lot. Oh, yeah, we have first Do you have fan? Actually, I ate before because I was so rushed today. I was working. Yeah, so we have different stuff. That's fine. I, actually, I'm, I'm all right now, Marash. Thank you for asking. Could you close that window there because I'm afraid the wind's going to blow the pages? Just because that one. I came right on time. So, what time did you start? Hey guys. <laughs>